Hello, I'm Fabian Alefeld, leader of the Additive Minds Consulting and Academy teams for EOS in North America. Welcome to another episode of Additive Snack, the podcast that supports you on your additive manufacturing journey with education and inspiration. Speaking of inspiration, that's a big theme in today's episode. I'm joined by Lynn Kaiser, CEO of Hyperganic Group. But Lynn is also much more than that. He's been a successful tech entrepreneur for more than 30 years. And his career path is fascinating. He's gone from industrial automation to bringing the Hollywood film industry into the digital age. To leadership roles in organizations focused on sustainability, renewable energy and spaceflight. Of course, his vision for Hyperganic is equally fascinating. Hyperganic wants to radically change the way objects are engineered and designed, using advanced algorithms to help engineers achieve groundbreaking design complexity. On today's episode, we will talk to Lynn about what inspired him to start Hyperganic, how Hyperganic's innovative platform can change the way products are engineered and designed, why the platform is a perfect fit for the next generation of additive manufacturing and additive manufacturing engineers. And lastly, what the future of AM will bring to you as a consumer and to international trade. But let's hear from Lynn directly. I promise you will be inspired. Lynn, welcome to Additive Snack. It is so great to have you with us. Thanks, Fabian, for having me. Yeah, looking forward. So, Lynn, you're calling in from Dubai, which is already very interesting, and you're currently, currently traveling all over the world to grow hyperganic. And I do think that you have a very interesting story on how you got there. Uh, and that story is definitely worth telling. So can you tell us a bit more about how you got to where you are today? Okay, how many hours do you have? <laughs> we have 25 minutes, so. Yeah, I'll keep it brief, but you know, I've, I've been an entrepreneur for more than 30 years now, so. I have uh, done a lot of different things in my life. You know, in the early 90s, I helped uh, build industrial control systems based on PC technology. You know, that was when uh, PCs were barely fast enough to do spreadsheets, let alone controlling in industrial CNC mills. Uh, but we managed to do it, and um, it, was, um, it was a hell of a ride. And then by complete coincidence, um, a story which is way too long to tell here, you know, I stumbled into a completely different field. I um, accidentally invented the first technology to play back digital movies for Hollywood. And uh, well, in 2002, um, we built the first digital cinema in the world using our technology for the Matrix movies. And uh, from then on, we were market leaders in the field of uh, high-speed image processing for Hollywood for, for the movie industry. And we helped digitize the, the film industry. And uh, we did that for a decade. And um, uh, then something happened that I didn't expect. In 2008, um, Al Gore gave his, favorite, uh, his famous talk on um, an inconvenient truth about climate change. And that kind of shook me awake a little bit because, um, you know, well, as I always joke, you know, I, I thought we, were, we had already solved the environmental crisis by separating our trash. And here's this guy talking about this monster that's barreling down on us. And uh, I felt, what the hell am I doing in the entertainment industry? 
And so, um, yeah, it started a thought process that um, then, in, in the end, triggered me selling my company to um, a big American company, Adobe. They wanted to do Photoshop for video, and we kind of had that. And, um, you know, I, I tried to figure out what I'd want to do with my life, you know, in the next couple of years. So that was in 2011. And in 2012, I... I bought a 3D printer for a completely different business idea I had. I had to do with underwater robotics. And I was hooked because um, you know, I've been a software guy all my life. I started coding when I was eight you know, on pen, with pen and paper back then. And then later with a programmable calculator. And then uh, with the very first PCs that came to the market, ridiculous devices that had a couple of kilobytes of RAM. And... Um, but I've been doing this you know, all my life. And um, when I discovered 3D printing, I was hooked because I said, you know, this is a device that can print my code. So I can code something and it can print something. It can materialize, you know, what I code. And uh, you know, I thought, yeah, maybe there is something for me to do. And uh, yeah, that, uh, that then led me to the idea for hyperganic, you know, hyperganic tries to dramatically accelerate innovation by moving engineering and manufacturing to a software paradigm. And I'm happy to elaborate on that a little bit. But that's basically you know, how I got into it. You know, it's like a completely random zigzag of crazy um, serendipitous um, turns from from you know on the industrial control systems, which I stumbled upon. I had no idea about industrial control systems. I just liked to code and they needed someone, you know, for their startup. And uh, then Hollywood, you know, we were the market leaders, you know, technology leaders in uh, in movie uh, playback and, and processing. I didn't know anything about Hollywood. You know, I thought if I, if I knew about the Hollywood sign on the hills and that was about it. I was sitting in my living room in Munich when I started this, then later moved to the office that we're still occupying in Munich. And uh, then I stumbled upon Hyperganic a little bit later. Very interesting story. And it sounds like you continued to follow your passion, which I think is very impressive. And what I actually did not know about you is that a speech from Al Gore about climate change actually initiated this whole shift towards yeah, your journey into additive manufacturing. Yeah. Crazy yeah, story. I mean, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, if we, if we kind of summarize it, you know, you went from revolutionizing film and manipulating images for film to now revolutionizing design, revolutionizing additive manufacturing. So let's talk a bit more about Hyperganic because the company that you are building right now will and already has a quite interesting part in the additive manufacturing ecosystem. So tell us a bit more about what makes hyperganic unique and what makes it important yeah i mean um <clears throat> i so so al gore's talk kind of triggered in me a thought process where i thought okay what is my biggest frustration with the state of the world right now and you know i grew up um you know to um fantastic renderings of space stations and flying cars and whatnot and you know so i assumed you know by the time i grow up you know a lot of this stuff is reality I didn't expect to grow up into a world where we are basically still struggling with the same problems or even worse problems that you know I I saw when I grew up and uh, it all boils down to one thing and that speed of innovation in physical objects so speed of innovation in software 
and speed of innovation and information technology is incredibly fast. I mean, we all know, know Moore's law and, and the exponential curve that it follows. It's fu fundamentally driven by software. You know, software is, is quite unique in, I mean, we talk about software engineering, but it's a really separate thing because in software, we invent something once and then everybody uses it. And so we always use the latest and best solution to everything. Why would you use a computer algorithm that's outdated? That makes no sense. You know, I mean, it's immediately available everywhere. And of course you use it. I mean, why would you do with something worse if you have something better? But that's not true in engineering. In engineering, you stick with old stuff for a long time because, uh, you know, especially on the manufacturing side, you have to work with tools that are there and you know, machines that already exist. And so that's the fascinating thing about additive manufacturing, 3D printing. You, know, you, you can basically, everything you produce can be unique and everything that you do is immediately, you know, available at, at, at the best possible solution. If you combine it with engineering, that is just as fast. And that's the interesting thing. So we have additive manufacturing. It's been around for 30 years. And um, I always wonder why it hasn't caught on more. And uh, the answer is because we are still trying to feed it with the designs that um, were made uh, with tools that were created for a completely different world, the world of subtractive manufacturing and, and you know, slow turnaround times and you know, complicated tools and complicated machinery that builds things. And I thought to myself, if we can move engineering, you know, the creation of the designs for these physical objects, if we can move that to the same paradigm that we have in software, where we invent something once and then we just reuse it and then use that in conjunction with additive manufacturing, then we finally can get to that um, world where you know, innovation in physical things happens just as fast as innovation in information technology. And uh, that's at the core of Hyperganic. We use computer code to encode the knowledge and the process that an engineer goes through when they design something. And then we let the algorithm produce these objects. So instead of the engineer clicking buttons you know, and uh, building these things manually, visually on screen, the computer actually does that. So it's software and the engineer moves to a higher level. So all of a sudden the engineer scales with um, the amount of computing power that you have available and not with the amount of coffee and, and working hours available you know, to the engineer or the number of engineers available in a company. And that's great for additive because additive you know, flourishes when you have lots of iterations and quick turnarounds you know, and when you create objects that are more complex than anything that people were able to do manually. And that's exactly what's happening with Hypergenic. So we have customers who build the most amazing objects using our technology, but they're all using computer code. So we're literally teaching engineers how to code. And then people always say to me, oh my God, but I'm, I'm a mechanical engineer. I'm just, I mean, I always hear that I'm just an aerospace engineer. Um, I don't know how to code. And I always answer, guys, I learned to code when I was eight years old. It's not rocket science. What you're doing is rocket science. Coding is not rocket science. So, you know, if I could learn it when I was eight, you can probably learn it in a week or two. And all of a sudden you are, you know, you're supercharged, your, your, your knowledge all of a sudden scales, your brain is free to actually do interesting and creative work instead of manual labor. And that's, that's basically what we do. Super interesting approach to design. And 
I mean, you you just mentioned this uh, a second ago that you know, we're starting to see more and more complex applications hitting the hitting the additive manufacturing machines. We we do see a stronger and stronger shift of engineers understanding the capabilities of of additive manufacturing. We we do see some small startups pushing into customized applications from eyewear frames to to insoles. But there's still so much more room to grow. Right, we were just at the beginning of really fully leveraging the the additive manufacturing capabilities. And you just mentioned, and I think that's such an important topic that a lot of people underestimate. It is the human that in the end is holding back the push and the acceleration of additive manufacturing. Can you talk a little bit more about this human-centered uh, design that you just mentioned? Um, we are, or we need a mindset shift if we really want to go towards a code-based design versus a visual design. How can engineers out there that have not that have no experience with additive manufacturing and have no experience with code-based design wrap their head around that concept. And I think the second question then comes into place is, are we even in enabling current software engineers that are not in the additive manufacturing industry, that are not industrial designers, all of a sudden a shift towards manufacturing because we do have a huge gap in manufacturing jobs. We have currently... 500,000 open jobs just in the United States alone in manufacturing is expected to grow to 2 million open jobs by 2000, by 2030. Can your software possibly fill that gap? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, <clears throat> there's a lot of interesting questions in here <clears throat> that um, you know, are kind of uh, um, branching out from that. So, um, I mean, to a certain extent, it requires a engineer to be open to new things. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, we all know that not everyone on this earth is open to new things. I mean, there's a lot of people who just want to do their job as they did it before. You know, it's sad to me, but it's okay for them. So these are not the guys who will probably do it. You know, there's probably going to be other people. It's going to going to be people who graduate from the universities. And I've heard about it. You know, as people who are open-minded and who are going to do this. And you know, the story is, of course, you know, <clears throat> once you go there then uh, you're so much more efficient and you have so much more creative potential that you're going to leave everybody out there hanging who doesn't follow. I mean, we had the same thing when computer-aided design was introduced. I mean, there were still people working with pen and paper and they were pretty good working at pen and paper, but at some point their skill was irrelevant. So I can only hope that many, many of these people will actually you know, make the leap to, um, you know, this new world. And uh, you know, I can just tell you from the experience that we had with people who made the leap, they will never go back. It feels like, you know, you know, from an analog world to a digital world, you know, I mean, why would you, uh, you know, when things are so much easier and uh, so much more rewarding? So that's that's one part. <clears throat> now, the other part is, as you said, we have a gigantic gap in... Um, in the amount of people that we need um, to help us build these amazing machines that are hopefully help us uh, solve some of humanity's greatest challenges. And there are not enough engineers out there. Now, if you supercharge an engineer through technology, so like I said, you know, you're, you're basically you're, you're able to scale your work 
with the amount of computational power that you have and not with the amount of people and the amount of you know um, uh, hours in the day then you, this can also help us um, fill some of the gap you know I think honestly we are not gonna fill the gap because there's so many more things that will come out of that that we're still going to desperately look for people who can actually do that. Now, you asked whether software engineers could fill the gap. Now, I find that quite interesting because um, <clears throat> there's a lot of software engineers um, that I know who are building virtual worlds. You know, they're building you know, computer games or building stuff for, um, for movies and stuff like that. So they're actually doing to a certain extent in the virtual world where we desperately need in the physical world. So if we could get some of these folks, you know, away from their, you know, I, I always think, you know, stop playing games, let's make it for real. Yeah, um, I think that would be great. However, you know, just to caution, uh, we have had much more success so far with retraining somebody from um, from uh, you know, mechanical engineering, aerospace engineering, etc., background to learn how to code, then a coder to learn all the knowledge, all the body of knowledge that you need in order to actually create real physical things. Because one thing to design something that looks nice, it's another thing to build something that actually works. And for that, you need a lot of knowledge, and you know that that's what our universities are good for. And uh, so I think. It's easier to bridge the gap from the other way around, but Fabian, as you said, you know we have this gap, and uh, unfortunately, we also have this gap with software engineers. So it's not like there's millions of software engineers desperately looking for new jobs right now. So, yeah, I guess more people need um, need to get onto it. There's one aspect though of our technology that is quite interesting. So what you do when you create an object using our technology is you don't create an object; you create a process that creates objects. And now the user interface that you create to this process can be that simple. I mean, if you look at a CAD program today, it has the 747 cockpit, you know, the pilot knows exactly which buttons to push. You know, I go into a 747 cockpit, I look overwhelmed and just think, oh my God, you know, how can you even put so many switches into a cockpit? So that's how a CAD program looks to um, a layperson right now. If you create a special app that drives a specific process, you know, even designing a rocket engine or a really complex heat exchanger or a fuel cell, or whatever, can become a relatively simple task. And so you can put people uh, to work who don't need to understand all the implications of the design changes. They can actually try out things, you know, experiment with things. It can be much more democratized. So I think maybe that can also help a little bit. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And one thing you mentioned that I, I think is a great term is to supercharge engineers and supercharged engineers in the end, uh, hopefully will create supercharged applications. What are some of the applications that you see hyperganic and a code based approach to design will have the biggest impact in the near future? Yeah, it's actually a difficult question to answer because we are already, you know, with our relatively small team, we're, you know, 50 people now. Uh, covering a lot of different fields, you know, from space hardware to the medical field to bioprinting to um, you know consumer goods. Um, but you know, I mean, just to give you a few examples, I mean, everything that is close to body needs to really go through a 
algorithmic engineering process, if you think about it. You know, it makes no sense that we buy helmets that don't fit, you know, when they could just grow around our heads. You know, it makes no sense for us to squeeze our feet into shoes that don't fit because, well, you know, everybody has different feet. So why are not, we not growing, um, you know, the, the uh, shoes around them and produce them on demand? I mean, these are some of the applications that we're working on where we have customers, where we have customers that are already on the market. We, um, uh, of course, have a sweet spot in highly optimized objects. So if you have a process that creates an object, I can create a lot of different objects and I can select the ones that work best. So instead of engineering this one perfect object, which is never going to be perfect because I have limited time, I generate a gigantic solution space and I pick the object that's optimal, maybe create a feedback loop, you know, loop that back into the algorithm, create basically what evolution did you know, in, in nature many, many um, uh, billions of years. So um, that, of course, is very interesting in specifically the fields of heat exchangers. Heat, I mean, I mentioned you know, why I started Hypergenic. Heating and cooling the world, especially cooling the world, is going to be one of our biggest challenge challenges um, and um, uh, doing it in a way that doesn't emit a lot of CO2 is going to be really difficult. Using additive, you can create heat exchangers that are so much more efficient that it is really dramatic, but it's not so easy to design them and not so easy to optimize them. So again, interesting field. Extracting water from the air is a very, very interesting field. You know, when we're talking about impact uh, on humanity, you know, this is this is also extracting water from the air is actually a really great way to solve drinking water problems in a lot of arid regions in the world because the water is actually there. It's just in the air. It doesn't rain. So if you can extract it uh, without uh, wasting a lot of energy, this is really, really interesting. Uh, but, you know, I mean, we are active in almost any field conceivable. I mean, from bioprinting, lung tissue to... Um, you know, battery technology, you know, electric motors, um, uh, you know, car suppliers, you know, we have car suppliers as our customers, et cetera. So um, we are going, I mean, so far we've done it more or less in stealth mode. So all of this were customers that we actively pursued. Now on June 15th, we're go going to open the platform for everyone. And uh, then we're going to see, you know, what kind of applications our customers come up with. I can't wait to, to see that. I mean, every field, that we touched, I mean, there's literally, I mean, we're, we're literally having a transformative impact, which is not surprising to me because it's a little bit like going from a mechanical calculator to a spreadsheet. I mean, yes, uh, it kind of does the same, but, you know, one thing is like, you know, very, very slow and, you know, you have to type every number in and the other thing is kind of automatic and you can automate things. So it's it's literally, you know, like, like day and night, you would never go back to the mechanical calculator once you use the spreadsheet and you'll never go back from algorithmic engineering once you're there. Yeah, maybe even from spreadsheet to visual basics, uh, yeah. <laughs> which is uh, also a intimidating step. But once you're there, it's, uh, yeah, you don't go back. Uh, yeah, thanks for explaining all these fields of applications that you just mentioned. I think um, yeah, the impact is quite clear that code-based design uh, can have not only on our engineers out there that are listening, but also on the biggest human challenges that challenges that we have that you mentioned around climate change, cooling cooling down the planet, but also cooling down data centers through uh, heat exchangers, uh, which in the end will then only increase performance of our uh, algorithmic capabilities. So my last question to you, Lynn, is because 
you're a visionary and I think you have a really great vision on how the additive manufacturing industry will evolve. What does this all mean for the end user out there? What does this all mean for international trade, the supply chain challenges that we have today? What is the impact that additive manufacturing will have down the road? Yeah, I mean, I think for the end user, it's it's going to be very interesting because a lot of things are going to be customized and a lot of things will start to look different. I mean, if you look at your, I don't know, the apartment that you're currently in or the car that you're currently driving in or whatever, I mean, if you look at it really critically, I mean, the stuff is actually pretty simple. You know, I mean, just look at the potted plant that you have in your room and you're like, uh, you know, have a contrast. You know, I mean, the, if, you, if you look at the plant, you know, this is the pinnacle of engineering. Yeah, I mean, this is this is what nature creates. And we humans will get much closer to what nature creates. I mean, some of the objects that we generate start looking like natural objects. So visually, you'll see a lot of difference in terms of performance and sustainability and elegance and efficiency, etc. You're going to see a lot of difference. But uh, Fabian, as you said, I mean, I think you're also going to see um, quite a few differences when it comes to trade and these kinds of things. Because if you if you have an algorithm that creates objects, it doesn't really, it, you know, it's, it doesn't matter where this algorithm runs. And if you have additive as the producing element, if you have a factory using additive manufacturing, it doesn't really matter where this factory is. You know, it's not going to require, I mean, that's the, Brutal fact, it's not going to require a lot of humans. You know, it's going to be a lights out factory, a factory where you don't need lights at night because, well, there's nobody in it. Um, uh, but it doesn't have to be somewhere in a remote region in Bangladesh. You know, it can be right next door, more or less. Now, um, I think people will start trading more on the algorithmic side. So they're, they're going to license algorithms that produce objects versus, you know, shipping physical things around. Um, if you are working on a complex design, you're going to license um, information, you're going to license algorithms for other third parties instead of buying a component. And now the component, the algorithmic component that you're buying will adapt to your solution versus you know, your solution trying to adapt to a physical component you bought somewhere. So it's going to have a, quite a few quite a few implications for the um, uh, trade of intellectual property and physical goods and these kinds of things. However, um, I do think um, that you know, a lot of people are saying, yeah, with additive manufacturing, you can just produce on demand. You know, there's no, no longer going to be complex supply chains, et cetera. I think that's true for a lot of objects. But I also think uh, you know, going forward, we are going to see a counter trend. Um, uh, I think at some point, these uh, factories are going to be the most complex factories ever designed. Currently, the most complex factories that exist on planet Earth are microchip fabs. They cost billions of dollars to produce, and um, there's only a few in the world that are on the latest technology. A lot of them, are like Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Com uh, uh, Corporation, they have like a, a few fabs, and that's where the world's most advanced microchips are produced. I think there's going to be a few fabs where the most advanced physical objects in the world are going to produce. And these factories are not going to be simple. They're not going to be distributed. They're going to be in the regions and the places where the people jump on the bandwagon as soon as possible you know, now. Because uh, the people who invested early in these 
transformations, they are still the ones dominating it. I mentioned uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. Taiwan very specifically said, you know, this is going to be a future technology. We are going to make a national effort to actually build um, up this technology in our country and uh, in our region. And uh, they um, they did it and uh, they are still the market leaders. So, you know, you know, a couple of decades, they're still going strong. So um, I think a lot of people should think about what it means for factory automation and these kinds of things using additive technologies and also the 3D printing companies, you know, additive manufacturing uh, manufacturers, a lot of them have been uh, around for 30 years and um, uh, they still build boxes that are serviced by humans. And uh, that's not going to be the future. And I think they all know this. I just would say, let's put the pedal to the metal and really speed this up because, you know, as fast, the faster we can make this transformation, the faster we can actually create uh, mass production of these objects. And that's what my company is all about. I mean, our business model only works when there's really significant uh, volume behind it. We're not interested in one-offs. We're not interested in some kind of weird test object. We're interested in building lots and lots and lots of objects and producing them on lots and lots of machines and shipping them to lots and lots of people. So I think uh, it's going to be very, very interesting. I think it's going to be very comparable to um, what happened with the microchip, with the invention of the microchip in, in computing. I think we're going to see a similar race in uh, manufacturing and uh, engineering. And uh, well, we're all along for the ride, I guess. Yeah, we're all along for the ride. And uh, I think we're all now putting the pedal to the metal. Uh, I do see a very interesting shift right now in adopting additive manufacturing across multiple industries, across many organizations that haven't looked at additive manufacturing just a year ago. So yeah, I think your vision may become true. And uh, I really do hope it does. Because our conversation today made me excited for the future. Uh, it made me also confident about us solving the human challenges that we have, not only through additive manufacturing, but with additive manufacturing as a key technology in the future. And we need people like you, Lynn, to, to work out technologies and solutions that will help us to solve these important challenges as humans. So I would like to thank you for for building Hyperganic. I would like to thank you for having a vision, but also for sharing your vision and your experience and your knowledge with us and the Additive Snack community. Yeah, thanks, Fabian, for having me. I mean, um, I'm a little bit pissed that, um, you know, people have a negative view of the future these days. I think we humans are capable of, um, you know, solving the problems that we created. And, uh, you know, thank you for your kind words. You know, it's, it's very encouraging. There's a lot of people who are excited about uh, you know what is going on in this in this field, and uh, I think we're gonna you know do all the things and uh, hopefully get people excited about um, you know what's coming. So thank you for having me, and you know looking forward uh, to hearing the podcast when it comes out. Yeah, same for me. And uh, you know, let's talk again in a year. Uh, I'm sure great things will happen, and maybe we're gonna have to make it an additive meal. Uh, than just an additive snack, because <laughs> I think we have uh, a lot more to talk about. We do. Yeah, thank you. I was really inspired by today's episode, and I hope you were as well. For more information about Hyperganic and Lynn Kaiser, visit hyperganic.com.
And if you're an engineer, a product designer, or a software developer, we want to hear from you. What do you think about the approach Hyperganic is bringing to the world of product design? Do you think next-gen tools will change the way objects are designed, customized, and manufactured? Do you think AI and algorithms can influence the way humans think about design language? And what are the applications that excite you the most when you think about Hyperganic's powerful capabilities? Drop us a line at additive.snack at eos-na.com and share your thoughts with us. Your feedback could inspire guests and topic ideas for future episodes. And we're hoping to have Lynn Kaiser back again. On the next episode, we are going to continue talking about innovation. This time with Arno Held, managing partner at AM Ventures. He will join us to talk about the big trends in the world of AM-focused startups. He'll also share his expert advice on how to build your organization around additive manufacturing. It's going to be another inspiring and thought-provoking episode, so be sure to tune in. Make sure to subscribe to Additive Snack in the podcast app of your choice. You'll be notified as soon as the next episode is live. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Fabian Alefeld, and please join us next time on Additive Snack.